This is soprano Bonnie Jo Hunt singing against a choral backdrop. But no matter how well-versed you are in classical repertoire, I guarantee this is not a chorus you've ever heard before. In fact, it's not even human. You can try and figure out what it is, or you can just stay tuned to ReSound. Welcome to ReSound, where we bring you intriguing audio work from around the world, curated by the Third Coast International Audio Festival on Chicago Public Radio. I'm Gwen Matsai. Each week we hunt, we peck, we prowl, and we probe what's out there, from radio heard in other countries to audio that only exists on the web. Then we bring you the most interesting work we've found Sunday nights at 5. Tonight, we have four stories. First, Big Stone Heads, an audio snapshot of Easter Island. Then, Bonnie Jo Hunt, how a young girl from a remote part of North Dakota fell in love with opera, followed by Last Train to Braintree, the story of Jamie, a homeless man told by Matthew, his friend, and another homeless man. And finally, Mars over Zagreb, a portrait of a city through the eyes of a young native. So come, take a ride, take a seat, take a listen. We all have an inherent curiosity about places far away. And somehow it seems the more remote, the more fascinating. Well, you can't get too much more remote than Easter Island in the South Pacific, more than 2,000 miles away from another population. While you and I may never get there, producer Jack Chance did and came back with this story called Big Stone Heads. The thing about Easter Island is that it's in the middle of nowhere, a thousand miles from the nearest anything, an otherwise unimportant island in the South Pacific, otherwise unimportant if it weren't for the Moai, you know, the big stone heads. You've probably seen them on TV. That's Kai, a local sculptor. His yard is full of works in progress carved from wood scraps or red volcanic rock. Over there is a gravestone for his father, who passed away last week. Since Kai seems to be carrying on the sculpting craft of his ancestors, I figured maybe he could clue me in on how the mysterious Moai were built. He tells me the ancient Rapa Nui chiefs possessed supernatural mental powers, and with a little help from some Martians, made the statue stand up and walk. He's just messing with me. But legend says that the Moai, which can weigh up to 80 tons, walked from the volcanic quarry to their positions along the rocky coast. I decide to walk around the island for a few days, checking out petroglyphs hidden in the grass and the half-buried Moai, left unfinished at the quarry or lying derelict along the shoreline. Some archaeologists think the Moai were transported by rolling the immense stone sculptures on top of the trunks of palm trees. But the few trees here today were introduced by foreigners. So if these archaeologists are right, the Rapa Nui deforested their island completely 
when they built their statues. The Moai aren't revealing any of their secrets. They just gaze over the barren landscape. Anyway, I'm no archaeologist. I came to the most remote inhabited island on Earth to hear what kind of music the locals play. Lucky for me, I run into Dan Benders, an Australian ethnomusicologist working on his PhD. After months of research on the island, he's brought one of the most respected Rapa Nui musicians out of retirement. Together with another student, Papa Kiko sings us this song, which he wrote when the first Moai were restored in 1960. The lyrics describe their pride in seeing this memory of their ancestors being lifted up again, you know, having been destroyed and, and, uh, and ruined previously. The thing about Easter Island is that there are no trees. The palms went extinct centuries ago, so the locals could move those big stone heads. Went extinct to move the big stone heads so there wasn't any wood left no wood to build boats for fishing or to leave the island. Some of the greatest navigators who ever lived, they found little old Easter Island out in the empty blue waters, and there's no wood left to go fishing. No wood for fires, no wood to escape. No wood left because they built those big stone heads. You know some guy went to work one day and his boss says, Tote, cut down that palm over there. And Tote looks at the last tree on the island and he goes and does his job. Cuts down the last tree on the island and there's no more wood. And Tote gets his paycheck, and the people go hungry and turn to war and cannibalism, and they topple every last one of the big stone heads. And the white folks come on an Easter Sunday, and they baptize the non-believers with hydrochloric acid, and the islanders get smallpox on the slave ships while their families back home sit on the reservations. And then the white people find out about the toppled heads and the dying culture and they come back with anthropologists and photographers to marvel at the big stone heads all toppled on the ground. And the anthropologists and photographers bring some money and they resurrect the big stone heads, and the tourists come and they let the locals off the reservations, and the locals grow dreadlocks and raise horses in the treeless hills, because Tote went to work one day and left them all stranded. The thing about Easter Island is that it's in the middle of nowhere, a thousand miles from the nearest anything, an otherwise unimportant island in the South Pacific. On this island, we call Earth. Big Stone Heads was originally produced by Jack Chance for NPR's program Day to Day. While not quite as remote, a Sioux reservation near Fort Totten, North Dakota, is far away from any city life and not your average breeding ground for the opera star of tomorrow. But that's where Bonnie Jo Hunt grew up. As the founder of Artists of Indian America, she works to preserve dying traditions of Native American art. She's also an internationally known soprano. Producer Greg McVicker caught up with her and the creatures who sometimes accompany her in his story called simply Bonnie Jo Hunt. 
One day, my dad and I were traveling in the car, and I heard this very strange tone. It, it just sounded ooh, 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 like that, and I thought, wow, that's really interesting. So I asked him what it was, and he said, ah, oh, you don't want to hear that. And he reached over and he changed the station, and he said, that's opera, and all operas are real boring, <laughs> and all opera singers are great big fat people <laughs> so I didn't dare tell him but I thought boy that's an interesting sound and what attracted me was that I thought it would be very hard <laughs> to get a voice like that but I thought I could do it and I was 10 then and we lived at Fort Totten North Dakota Devil's Lake Sioux there and uh, I was scared too because I thought gosh I think I'll need a voice teacher <laughs> And there were, needless to say, no voice teachers and there were no pianos even. I also thought I should have a piano. <laughs> One morning at the breakfast table, my mother said to me, oh, I didn't know you could sing. Why didn't you tell me that you could sing? And I said, oh, I can't. I can't. She said, yes, you can sing. You were singing in your sleep. And you hit the most beautiful high notes. They sounded just like bells. Well, that's all I needed. I raced outside to find my little friend Weasel, Weasel Norsby. And I, I asked her, Weasel, will you join the talent show <laughs> with me? I do a lot of traveling because of our our nonprofit organization. We work with children on self-improvement, so I'm out in the reservations much of the time. And I had these messages saying that Robbie Robertson said to get in touch with me. So we went in studio. He said, I want you to do whatever you feel like. And now these are crickets. So I thought, oh my goodness, I'm to accompany crickets, see? And when I heard them, I was so ashamed of myself. I was so humbled because I had not given them enough respect. Jim Wilson recorded crickets in his backyard and he brought it into the studio and went ahead and lowered the pitch and lowered the pitch and lowered the pitch and they sound exactly like a well-trained church choir to me. And not only that, but it sounded to me like they were singing in the eight-tone scale. And so what they started low, and then there was something like I would call in musical terms an interlude, and then another chorus part, and then an interlude, and another chorus, and they kept going higher and higher. They were saying cricket words. <laughs> I kept thinking, oh, I almost can understand them. It's a nice, mellow tone. And they never went off pitch until one of the interludes where they went real crazy and they got back on again to where they were. And I know that people do not know that they're listening to crickets unless they're told that that's what that is.
the story belt. It is what has been forgotten. It is a smell of sweet grass and cedar and prayers that the sky father. It is a way, a tradition, the way it was always done by the people. It is a feeling of warmth, the sound of voices. Listen, I am dancing underneath you. Bonnie Jo Hunt was originally produced for NPR's Day to Day by Greg McVicker of Earthsong, a public radio program that explores the native influences that help shape and define contemporary American music. And now we want to turn to a profile of a completely different kind in the next piece by Chelsea Mers. It's called Last Train to Braintree. Chelsea's working on an ongoing project called the Matthew Chronicles, in which she's following Matthew, a homeless man, to record his life and thoughts. While you may have heard a lot of stories like this on the radio, one of the things that stands out about this one is that Matthew takes on the role of storyteller, subject becomes narrator, when he tells the story of another homeless man's life in this excerpt called Last Train to Braintree. The first year that I was homeless, I was in what's considered to be the best shelter in Boston. St. Francis House. It was crazy. Crazy place. There was a dining room. There was a TV set attached to the ceiling in one of the corners of that dining room. That TV was always on. It was usually loud. and just felt like prison. Like you're thrown in with all different kinds of people. Some were like released from prison so they were tough, you know, street guys that you, you know, wouldn't want to get mad at you. You could pull a knife on you. There were people of different races, different cultures. There were language barriers, you know. Fights could break out right and left. There were incidents of theft inside the place. I know a guy who left his bunk for a split second and then he thought, wait a minute, I left my sneakers on the top of the bunk. He went back just to check and there was one sneaker left. One night, it was around midnight, and I just wasn't able to fall asleep easily. So I got out of my bunk, and I was just like pacing back and forth, trying to get tired. All of a sudden, someone was brought in. And he just was standing there, and he looked at me and said, Hi, what's your name? My name's Matthew. What's your name? My name is Jamie. If you meet somebody in a shelter like this, you know, you might just look at each other and just one person might nod at you and you nod back or you just say, what's up, man? You know, all right, how you doing? You know, just, you know, words like that. It's like, it just seems so different, so weird. Hi, what's your name? My name is Jamie. You know, was, you know, whatever. It was like, it's like... Even before you could respond, you're already like, whoa, what's this? This is different. This is, uh, 
he just stood out so much compared to the other guys in the shelter. And you don't want to stand out, you know. Jamie was tall, he was thin. He had a head of hair, it was blonde. It almost looked like it was like a hairdo or something. Uh, this huge wave of very blonde hair, like it was maybe dyed blonde. And then I noticed on one of his wrists, he had a, a cast. And then he started talking about it. I was just brought in here. I was over at another shelter, and some guy broke my wrist. They sent me to a hospital, and they put a cast on it. He held up his wrist to show me the cast. So they brought me over here. I said, oh, wow. It's awful. Someone broke your wrist? Yeah, some guy just grabbed my hand and just twisted it real hard. I said, oh, that's awful. Well, that was it, pretty much. Just, you know, a little conversation like that. But I thought, what must it be like? It seemed like he was gay. And if, if you're gay and you're in a place like this, you're mixed in with people, you know, some of whom have just been released from prison. You know, it's just, it just seems sad. Maybe he had done something or said something at this other shelter. And some guy just grabbed him by the hand and just twisted his wrist, you know, broke it. A week or so after that, I was barred from the shelter. That's a story in itself which I could go into in more detail, but right now I'd rather talk about Jamie. A few days after I was barred, I saw Jamie again. He was walking down the street. He had a black eye. And he looks at me and he says, hello, handsome. <laughs> I was like, and I felt like punching him, you know, he felt like, even though that's not the kind of thing I would do, but still, I was like, what are you, are you crazy? This is probably what's happened to him in the, in the past, where he'll be this way with other people, and other people will just punch his lights out. Another week went by, and one night out at the vans for the homeless, they'll give out soup and sandwiches and socks. So I was out there in one of the vans getting a sandwich, and I saw Jamie. He was wearing like this long black coat. It was like a cashmere coat with his collar up, and it just contrasted with the very blonde shock of hair, that wavy hair that he had. And he saw me and he came up to me. Hi, Matthew. I said, hey, Jamie. I said, hey, what are you doing here now? It's past the time that you should be in at the shelter. And he said, they barred me. I said, they barred you? Yeah. Yeah, just like they barred you, they barred me now. And so he started talking. Said, Matthew, where do you go at night now when it's cold like this? I told him the latest strategy that I've figured out is get onto the trains like at 8 o'clock at night find a seat all the way in the corner of one of the trains and since you're so tired 
you could fall asleep and the train would go back and forth from alewife to braintree back and forth back and forth and you could get a number of hours of sleep in and i said but be careful be careful that you're not still asleep by that last run because if that happens and you end up all the way out in braintree you'll be stuck out there for the whole night I told him it happened to me once. It was freezing. It was scary. I didn't know what to do. One time I was walking and I saw Jamie. He was sitting down on a park bench. It was cold. It was, uh, he was wearing that long black coat, and he said hello to me. He, he called out. So I said, oh, hi, Jamie. How you doing? How's everything going? I said, uh, not good. Said, oh, what, what, something happened? He said, I'm sitting here thinking of killing myself. Said, whoa, whoa, what's, what's going on? What do you mean? What, don't talk like that. What's, there's always hope. Really? There's always hope. I don't see any hope. I said, well, yeah, you know, things can look so bad sometimes. For me, it, you know, I have faith in God, and, and if you happen to believe, it just seems like it's so hopeful. And then I was like, you know, that's why I'm walking by here. I'm on my way to St. Paul's Cathedral because the doors open at 1130. You could go in and just sit for half an hour waiting for the meal to be served at noontime. And then after that, there's a church service at one o'clock, you know, it's just... So I mentioned this to him, and then he said, can I come with you? Sure, no problem. So he came in with me. One day, at the noontime meal, I was hearing this beautiful classical piano being played. It turned around, and it was Jamie. <laughs> it was Jamie sitting at the piano playing classical music. I was like, I couldn't believe it. So I got up, I went over, I said, you play classical piano? I said, yep. And that day, you know, you were thinking of suicide, man. With a gift like this, you know, you'd be throwing that away. Then he said, do you have any requests? I said, yeah, yeah, actually, there, there's a piece of classical music that was something, it was a movie, it was, it was in the movie. Oh. So, and I, I, I said, look, I'll go to the video store and I'll look up the film. It's got to say it somewhere on the video cassette case. The following week, I didn't see Jamie. He wasn't there at the meal. He was, didn't show up at the church service. The next week, 
I went to the meal. And before the meal began, this woman got up there and said, I have an announcement to make. Some of you may have known Jamie. Well, Jamie was found dead on the T. He was on one of the cars on one of the trains uh, out in Braintree. The officials said that he died of cardiac arrest. When I heard that, I immediately just imagined it like, oh God, no. I was like, I just pictured what could very well have been the case as to what happened. You know, it would be pitch black, freezing cold. Was he in a panic from the moment he woke up, screaming, crying out for help? His heart was racing faster and faster. He's feeling himself dying, you know? Oh, man. It's just a nightmare. could think of after that was I never got to tell him the name of the classical musical piece that I had in mind when he had asked me do you have any requests it's like yeah I had I had one in mind but I just didn't know the title of it I had to go to a video store check the movie I knew Al Pacino was in it and Michelle Pfeiffer so I looked up their names in the directory and found that the film was called Frankie and Johnny and that the particular piece of classical music that's the highlight in the film is Claire de Lune. Now anytime I would hear that song I can picture Jamie playing it and and realize what's been lost. As we mentioned, Last Train to Braintree is part of an ongoing project called The Matthew Chronicles, and it's produced by Chelsea Mers. She's been working on the project for about a year now, and any time you've got an ongoing project that's this long and of this scope, it's always interesting to see where things start, where things are now, and where we expect them to finish. So we called Chelsea to talk about it. 
Can you explain how you came to this project and what kind of scope you want it to have? I met Matthew a year ago. I went to an art exhibit where homeless people were displaying their artwork, and his art was very political. When I saw him, I thought, God, this guy's really interesting. He would make a good radio feature. And so we met for lunch uh, about a week later, and I hooked up a lavalier mic to him and just recorded our lunch conversation. And at the end of the day, I thought, there's just too much. Um, he's, he seemed too interesting, and there was no way that I could conceive of just doing a tidy little five-minute spot on him. So we just agreed to keep meeting and recording our conversations, and he'd tell me about homelessness. And now, and I also thought he seemed like somebody who had a lot of potential to get off the streets. And I thought this would be great to document sort of his descent into homelessness, his life on the streets, and him getting off of them. And since a year's passed, I'm starting to realize that his homelessness is probably chronic. So now I'm focusing on why is he homeless and why will he most likely remain homeless. What's your relationship with Matthew like now that you've been uh, with him for a year? It's interesting. I started to record. As soon as I meet him, I have the mic on because we usually chat like two friends for about the first hour, just catching up on stuff, talking about movies. So I've been recording this to show what a paradox this is because this is someone I really relate to and I really like spending time with. But then as soon as we start talking about homelessness and it just becomes so clear how what a different universe he's living in and what a different universe I'm living in. And I'm trying to reconcile how is it that we have so much in common yet are, are in, from two different planets, really. What have you kind of come away with or how has it changed you in any way? Well, okay, for example, uh, one day we met for lunch. I walked home. It started to rain and I walked home in the rain. I had probably about 10 minutes where I was getting, you know, poured on. And I found out the next week that Matthew was stuck under a awning of Lord and Taylor for over an hour because he didn't have the luxury of getting soaking wet like I did because I was going to go home and, you know, put on some warm clothes and dry off. And, you know, he's going off into a totally different way of living as soon as we leave that restaurant. Also, I take a shortcut through Copley Mall, which is a very Tony shopping department. And part of me would just want to run into a Banana Republic and look at all the cashmere sweaters because it was such a, a palate cleanser to like be in this universe of wealth and riches after hearing about homelessness for three hours. And so I, I felt very conflicted after I'd meet with Matthew. I'd feel, and also he's one of the most cheerful people I know. So it was really good to think, um, yeah, here's a man who sometimes sleeps with rats, and he's in a much better mood than most people I know who are bummed out because their condo's not selling. So, yeah, it definitely it's changed the way I think about things. Chelsea Murs, producer of Last Train to Braintree, which is part of an ongoing project called The Matthew Chronicles. It was produced for WCAI in Woods Hole, Massachusetts, for a show called Arts and Ideas. Coming up, a trip to Zagreb. Stay with us.
You're listening to ReSound from the Third Coast Festival on Chicago Public Radio. I'm Gwen Maxi. In a few minutes, we're going to go along on a trip to Zagreb. But first, we want to give you a little break from words, a chance to relax, reflect, and hear music you might not have heard before. This is Kid Spatula. Music by Kid Spatula from the album Meast on Planet Mew Records. So far tonight on ReSound, we've been to Easter Island, North Dakota, Boston, and now we once more board a mental plane, this time landing in Zagreb, a city in Croatia that is undergoing huge changes as it tries to move on from its communist past. Mars Over Zagreb was produced by young radio maker Pavlista Bajcek for the Australian Broadcasting Corporation. It's not your standard audio guide of a city like you might find in an official tour bus. It's more like an audio journey through memory. I recommend that you get into a place where you don't have too many distractions and find a comfortable seat so you don't miss any of the subtleties of Mars over Zagreb. U srijedu 27. kolovaza 2003. godine na Zagrebačkoj zvijezdarnici održaše se u 20 sati i 30 minuta popularno predavanje pod naslovom Mars. Mirogoj, the cemetery. Mirogoj, the word means peaceful grove. It is flanked on both sides by imposing ivy-covered arcades. In front of me, a church and a stone Jesus. On his side, two angels. They bow to him, holding pigeons in their hands. On the lap of the stone angel sits a real pigeon and is guilty of small green stains. They say that the cemetery of Zagreb, which lies on the northern glade, is the nicest part of town. Strange to start a story of a town with its cemetery. Nearby is the neighborhood I grew up in. My grandmother often took me for walks, not in the parks, but along the avenues of Mirogoy. Mirogoj is also a town of a kind. Even as a child, I took to its peacefulness. It got under my skin. The town can be heard everywhere, but seems distant, 
like the sounds of some other world. As if this one here is the real one, divided into fields and avenues. Most of the names, inscriptions and gravestones I know by heart, at least on the main roads. When you pass by Milka Trnina, the famous opera singer, you reach the cross which in the twilight twinkles quite merrily. On the right side between two cypress trees is my little path. I still kiss the stone when I arrive and smile when I sit down. I still need to think about the old days, the new days. Here time stands still. When I lift my head, I see the same view, the same treetops, pine trees, as if the clouds are always the same ones, like on that day when they became embedded in my memory, cut into the blue sky. Blue is a beautiful color. Some people say white Zagreb. Some say that blue is the color of Zagreb. Maybe because of the trams which were once all blue. Now they carry advertisements for sausages, cosmetics. Riding alone in a tram for me was an experience. It meant I was independent, big and strong. alone in a tram, no one with me. To recognize the stop I needed. One of my first independent journeys into town, into the center of town, it was a secret, of course. I took the number 14, three stops to the square, the main square, which then, during the time of Yugoslavia, was called Republic Square, now the Ban Jelačić Square, after a 19th century Croatian general. A moustache general. This function is ideal when putting the baby to sleep or when you want to catch quiet dialogue in movies. I wanted to buy my father a birthday present, I was a bit scared of wandering around the shops alone and the worried looks of the shop assistants when I asked them something worried me also. So I soon stopped in a big department store and bought a tie. My father didn't wear ties often. He seemed pleased with it. Maybe just to make me happy. The tie was horrible. Red. Such ties, I was to find out later, were typical of the politicians of that time. Today's politicians follow European fashion. In any case, I would prefer the color of Zagreb to be blue and not white. I don't think I have ever paid my tram fares. 
It is a matter of pride for my generation. If you pay for your ticket, you are not cool. It is the same today. We struggled against strange things, fought for them. Zagreb trams, blue, now yellow, red, silver, gold, sparkling. Back on the square again. Every town worth its name has to have a fountain to throw a penny in and wish for luck. In Zagreb, the fountain is Mandushevac. One of the legends of the origins of the name of Zagreb is attributed to it. It was a time when soldiers were horsemen and heroes, and girls were incredibly beautiful. One such horseman was on his way back from a strenuous journey. His throat was dry from the dust. And right on this spot, he happened upon a spring and a beautiful girl called Mandusha, who was scooping up water in a pail. Zagrabi vode, Mandusha. Grab some water, Mandusha, said the horseman. Whether love blossomed between them, we do not know. But apparently, this was the birth of Zagreb, which later became Zagreb. Boys are skateboarding in front of the Ban, Viceroy, on the main square. The girls sit and watch them, judging who jumps the three or four steps at a time best. The Viceroy, Ban Jelacic, is now a stone horseman. But while he was still had blood running in his veins, he fought against the Hungarians. The statue, facing Hungary, was removed after the Second World War. It's only remnant the saying, let's meet under the tail, that is the tail of the missing horse of the missing viceroy. At the time of Croatia's secession, heroes from the past were rehabilitated. And so too were the dusty parts of the viceroy, dragged out of some cellar and put back on the main square of Zagreb, this time facing the opposite direction. On the paving stones, images of our football players. Football players would be the knights and heroes of today, and their mandushas would be models. (laughs) 
this is how the square sounds after the defeat of the Croatian football team. Recorded while riding a bike. On a large screen, a TV sports commentator analyzes the defeat. We mourn our loss, but our future looks bright. Stairs lead up from the square to Dolac, the market. Tomatoes in Croatian paradise. Here they still smell of the sun and the soil of paradise. Medieval Zagreb, in fact, consisted of two towns of two neighboring hills, Kaptol and Gradec. There is a good view of the cathedral from Dolac, and the bridge of blood is nearby, leading up to Gradec. The name of the bridge is indication enough of neighborly relations at the time. The books tell us that in 400 years, 140 women were burned at the stake. All witches. A lady has entered into discussion with the butcher and is contending the appropriateness of his scales. It is not a meat scale, but a cream slice scale, she claims. A mild punishment for a woman in the Middle Ages was wearing a mask with a whistle attached to its mouth. How do the impoverished pensioners of Zagreb feel today when immaculately dressed they wander around Dolat in the afternoon bending down to gather up the leftovers of the daily trade in fruit and vegetables. With the end of the Turkish tract, at the end of the 17th century, the nobility and aristocracy slowly left their country castles and started building baroque palaces on gradets. Parties and balls, especially during the carnival period, were all the rage and their luxuries and indulgent lifestyle resonated around the hitherto plebeian town. Today Margareta was born, my close friend's daughter. I tell my friends of my incredible encounter with her. She was only two hours old when I felt our eyes meet across the hospital pain. A little further down, around the corner, someone is celebrating the birth of another little citizen of Zagreb. In a different, very conventional way.
Zagreb's first theater is also in the old town. In it are kept the costumes of the soprano singer Milka Ternina, made 100 years ago in the workshops of Covent Garden in London. And here is the pharmacy founded by Dante's great-grandson. The stone gate where the image of the Mother of God is kept. It was miraculously untouched in a fire. Here people light candles or write tributes in a stone. My eyes raised on one of them. Our Lady, thank you for finding the way to my happiness. Look after me in faraway Australia. Vesna. In order to escape the 76 steps leading down from the old town into the lower town, I take the funicular. That is the only tram I cannot practice my usual fare evasion. Two minutes later, I am on Ilica, the longest street in Zagreb. <laughs> is ideal when putting the baby to sleep or when you want to catch quiet dialogue in movies. And here I am, falling into the same gapping mouth of nostalgia. When I close my eyes, I see the square without the paving slabs. I see the shops without the shop assistants contorted smiles. The shelves with local goodies like Domacica keksi and the fizzy drink kokta piče naše i vaše mladosti, the drink of our and your youth. In different packaging, I see the clothes hangers with textiles and haberdashery. I see myself sledging down my street on a late winter night, and the only thing bothering me are my wet socks and my homework waiting to be done. I do not want my Zagreb to become a European city. Realizing what I have just said, I think... I'm thinking about Mars. tall lime tree towers above the grave. Next to the grave, a lamp in the darkness. My connection to this place started a long time ago, and it still lasts, especially on All Saints Day, when people bring chrysanthemums and light candles for the dead. On the other side of the walls, the atmosphere is slightly more vivid. The flower vendors lower their prices with the speed of the falling night. Even chestnuts are on sale to warm the cold hands. The gate is open all night and day. People meander around the paths of the graveyard and they could easily think they were walking among the stars. The long row of the candles in front of the cross could easily be taken for the Milky Way. The lights in front of the graves of famous writers, actors and politicians could be the large and small bear. 
to this day I make my way alone, almost ritually, along the same heavenly path upon which my father led me, paying respects to family or to friends who had passed away prematurely. Some of these graves, where I diligently light a candle each year, no longer bear any traces of other visitors. To light a candle, it makes me feel good. Yet, I hardly knew any of these people, these names. At the same time, in my thoughts, I assign each one of them a planet, Venus, Jupiter. It is hard work remembering all the paths, avenues and plots, but I rarely get lost. I just turn them into a solar system. And this place hardly ever makes me feel sad. The only difference here is that now, just after the arcades at the entrance, instead of a colorful flower bed of pansies, tulips, roses and grass, there stands a black marble slab, the grave of the ex-president. It is unavoidable, this massive presidential interpolation, but still it wonders me every time I encounter it. I do not know which planet I could assign to it. On the northern side of Miragoy, there is a place where the comets are. A place where I get confused, discouraged, scared. Rows of boys born in 73, 72, 71, 70, 69, 68, neighbors, classmates, unknowns. It is a strange place to begin a story of a town, at a town cemetery. But it is definitely easier to end it here. I stayed too long and the big metal gates are closed. In the empty caretaker's booth, a little radio is playing. On Wednesday, 27th August 2003, at 8.30 p.m., there will be a lecture at the Zagreb Planetarium, Mars. If weather conditions permit, we will observe Mars through the telescope. I missed Mars above Zagreb. Once, I would like to see how Zagreb looks from the vantage point of Mars. If only I could get there on time. The night watcher is still not there. Where could the cemetery guard have disappeared? I will have to climb over the gates. In a skirt. And high heels. Mars over Zagreb was written and recorded by Pavlica Bajcik. The music was composed and the sound edited by Vidran Petrnel, and translation was provided by Nicole Hewitt. Mars over Zagreb first aired on the Australian Broadcasting Corporation. And that's our final destination tonight on ReSound. We hope you've enjoyed your flight and will keep us in mind next time you need to make travel plans. 
ReSound is a production of Chicago Public Radio and the Third Coast International Audio Festival. The program is produced by myself, Gwen Maxi, and Katia Dunn, and curated by Johanna Zorn and Julie Shapiro of the Third Coast Festival. Thanks to Eric Rudd for engineering help. You can hear today's program at chicagopublicradio.org slash resound. And while you're at it, you can also hear dozens of outstanding documentaries from around the world at thirdcoastfestival.org. Generous support for the Third Coast Festival is provided by the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation, the Sarah Lee Foundation, the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, and the National Endowment for the Arts. Music for ReSound is provided by Reckless Records in Chicago. If you want to contact us, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at resound at chicagopublicradio.org. ReSound returns next Sunday at 5 with more radio that you can't hear anywhere else, unless you live everywhere else. Good night. <laughs>